are listening to It Simply Isn't Done, a podcast of Portage Chapel Hill. I'm Reverend Jess Davenport, and I am typically joined by Reverend Barry Petrucci. Barry is on a renewal leave, and we are excited for him and excited to welcome him back mid-October. We are going to have guests join us on the podcast that will reflect on the scripture, on messages, and a little bit about their life and ministry. And we are so happy that you're here. This week we started our The Gospel According to Band Books series. The book was Antango Makes Three. And today we have another guest with us. Amanda Casanova is here, and she's going to tell you a little bit about herself. Hi, I'm Amanda. I have been at Peachum for about 10 years and have two sons. One is 10. We actually started here around the time he was born because we loved the children's ministry so much. And um, I love to serve and am a part of SPRC. I'm a mom, I stay home with my boys, and I weave in my free time, um, which is not a lot of free time, but still can get a lot done. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're, I I forget about this sometimes, listeners, so if you're not Methodist or not hip to the acronyms, SBRC is our Staff Parish Relations Committee, and it's a group of volunteers who essentially kind of do uh, HR, human relations work, (laughs) for the church. Um, Sometimes it is really, really fun, and we get to celebrate people and affirm calls into ministry, and other times it's not so fun, as you might imagine, HR issues um, can be, but we're so grateful to have folks like Amanda who serve in that capacity. Um, You're going to hear the scripture, and then you're going to hear the message, And we will catch you on the other side for some reflection. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go towards the south, um, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet uh, Isaiah. Then the, the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And then he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. A word of God that is still speaking. 
Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Logan. Will you all pray with me? Gracious and holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, you all already know I am so excited for kickoff. I've been really excited for this series. And some of you might know that um, Barry actually came up with this series. <laughs> and then uh, the best time for it was when it was on his leave. So <laughs> I get to preach it. Um, and I think he's a little jealous. So you can check in with him about that later. <laughs> I'm excited, though, um, because this is going to be thought-provoking. It's going to be fun and move us into a deeper faith together. We wanted to do this series to speak to relevant cultural issues because they tie into our faith and who we are. At Chapel Hill, we are theologically progressive. Now, that does not mean the same thing as the partisan political understanding of progressive. One key element of progressive Christianity is the willingness to engage with ideas and for there to be nuance and some room to wrestle with them. And not every person has to shake out in the same spot. Our love for Christ and neighbor binds us so strongly, we're okay if we don't share every single view, and we understand that that diversity makes us better. So the thoughts coming up through many of our communities and school systems of banning books is concerning. It's concerning. Not having access to ideas to wrestle with or grapple with, that's pretty foundational for a lot of our faith. <laughs> it's concerning to think through what books are being banned and for what purpose. And some might shake their heads and say, listen, pastor, this book banning thing, it's a political issue. I don't know why you're preaching about it at church. I've said it before. I will say it again, and I'm going to say it now. I'm not going to engage in partisan politics from this pulpit, literally or metaphorically. I'm not going to do that. But politics, the literal meaning of the word, polis in Greek, it's city, it's community. It speaks to how we are going to live together, how we are going to be together. And the church, our church, and Jesus Christ himself had something to say about that, how we're going to be together. So throughout this series, we're going to engage a certain question that the book brings up. You are welcome to buy and read the books. They're lovely, but this won't be that kind of book chat. They're really a vehicle to talk um, about a question that's bigger and broader for us. So today we're starting with Antango Makes Three. I have the board book version of this. It is delightful. Um, you saw a little bit about, these were actually some penguins beyond the initial Roy and Silo penguins, right? In the, in the late 90s, Antango Makes Three was a book written about Roy and Silo at the Central Park Zoo. And Roy and Silo, um, during mating season, when typically opposite sex penguins would pair up, they paired up. And I forget who, who brought the stone to who, but if you know penguins, 
I was thinking little engagement rocks. They bring rocks to each other as a little engagement gift. And that's how they pair up. And I think it was Roy DeSilo. They built a stone nest together. And they were, again, much like the penguins we heard about, really desperate for an egg. And so they tried to incubate rocks. And eventually the zookeepers thought, hey, we know this happens in the wild. We're going we're gonna to give them an abandoned egg. And they did. So this book is really just a sweet, delightful story. It's in children's nonfiction. It just goes through what actually happened. And so when I thought through what the American Library Association's most contested books would be, what book would be on there for five years, I thought, well, maybe, maybe Mein Kampf, I don't know. Maybe a book on building pipe bombs. In no way did I think the whimsical, adorable book about gay penguins would be on that list. This was the most contested book in our country for five years. Folks were so threatened by this idea. And here at Chapel Hill, we are decidedly not threatened by the idea of inclusivity of gay and queer folks. Um, leadership voted to be a reconciling congregation in 1998. That's the organization and advocacy group for open and affirming uh, churches for LGBTQIA folks. And open and affirming means um, here at Chapel Hill, since 1998, uh, no matter how you identify, every level of leadership is open to you. Everyone, uh, up and to, through pastor, is open to who you are. So that's what open and affirming means. Because of that, uh, because this is an issue we've grappled with largely as a congregation, I'm going to kind of go into a different direction with this story, but I want to let you know if that concept is new to you, if being open and affirming, that's a new concept to you personally, I would love to have a conversation with you about it. I have a lot of resources I can recommend to you about it because I know not everyone might be there, but as a whole, right, we, we've understand that we're faithful Christians, we're scripturally literate, and we're affirming of queer folks. So then what do we have? What are we left with with Antango makes three if we already know we're open and affirming? And for me, interestingly, this question goes to the role of science and our faith. And here's why. For a very long time, homosexuality or queerness was demonized for being a crime against nature. And people used science to argue that homosexuality was evil or abhorrent. And folks drew on the most basic, their understanding of the most basic principles of um, Darwinian understanding of survival of the fittest and thought, well, the need to reproduce is up amongst those. Like, that's the whole point. So there must be a glitch then somehow if someone is queer and they use science to make an argument to draw moral and ethical conclusions about sexual orientation. Well, it didn't take too long for the discipline of science to uncover the fact that many, many animals exhibit same-sex sex behaviors. Many, many, many. In captivity, without, um, they don't exactly know why for all the reasons, but we saw a little bit about that. If you're interested in that, I have a fabulous podcast that really goes in depth of all the scientific studies, particularly about lesbian seagulls. So let me know. I'll give you the link to that podcast. It is very interesting to learn about that. But here's the thing. What do we do with that? Did we need science to tell us it's okay to be gay? Can science even answer these kinds of questions? And for me, 
The answer is no. Not because I don't love science. Some of you know that I was a history education major. That's what I taught for a little bit. But my minor was science education. <laughs> Loved it. Love science. Love learning. And right, we, we're not an anti-science congregation. It's obvious what a clear credit to society science has been. But here's the thing. Science does not seek to answer our moral and ethical questions. How many of you remember learning about the scientific process? Some of you are learning about it now. Right? You create a hypothesis, you test it, you track the data, you test it again. There is no cute little section that says, hey, what are the moral and ethical dilemmas here? No, we have to come in. We have to take the hard science and come in with our softer sciences and say, hey, how are we going to be together in this space? How many of you saw Oppenheimer? How many of you remember what happened with Oppenheimer? Friends, science built the bomb. And as a discipline, its confines do not answer the moral and ethical dilemmas of dropping that bomb, right? That was the whole crux of the movie and the issue generally. We need our values, what guides us in order to tackle those moral and ethical questions. And I want to be really clear because I think science and faith absolutely have a relationship and should be in conversation with one another, but I get concerned when we act as if they seek to answer the same questions, where we act as if you must choose one or the other. And we do that in society. Our society loves binaries. We love saying either you're a good Christian and you believe the earth was built in seven days by God or you believe the Big Bang. There's no in between. There's nothing different. You must choose. When we step back, we learn that Scripture's not trying to answer the question of how, but who. Who? Who made us? Why? Right? Science does the how and the what. So let's get back to our gay penguins. I'm going to say that as much as I can. <laughs> I don't often get to say that. I would never want to take away any bit of affirmation from someone who received it, right? So if you're a queer person and you felt permission to be queer because of these cute little penguins, I celebrate that with you. I think that's incredible. I think we need more things to give us permission to be who we really are. And right, I've already given examples about how science has been used to denigrate queer people. We don't need to go very far in our history or even today to know that science is being used for all sorts of morally dubious arguments. We need to consider what gives us permission to actually be inclusive. What gives us permission? We don't need gay penguins to tell us that the queer people in front of us, whom we're in relationships with, who we're looking back at in the mirror, are whole and beloved children of God. And their sexual orientation is part of who they are and who God made them to be. Our scripture today that Logan read is of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. We don't have a name for the eunuch, but we know their role and their status. Right? We understand clearly they were a eunuch. That was an important thing we needed to know. Scholars suggest that was literal, meaning this individual was in the sexual minority of people. So the eunuch's gender and sexuality were queer. 
they were also black from Ethiopia. Now, we have a modern understanding of that, right? In biblical times, everyone was black and brown. But we also understood at that time, a lot of the constructs around who's in or who's out has to do with ethnicity and religion, right? So that mattered. It mattered that he too was an ethnic minority. It mattered that the eunuch was not Jewish. Philip was called by an angel of God to meet the eunuch on the road. He does, right? And then they have this beautiful exchange about scripture. Like, I need someone to guide me. That's wonderful. And then after hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, the eunuch says, what is to prevent me from being baptized? What? What is to prevent me? A sexual minority, a queer black individual from being baptized. Do we need a scientific breakdown if it's okay? Do we need studies? Right? Do, do we need scientists and books? <laughs> of other species to tell us. And I'm not trying to make science seem less important. It just cannot answer these questions for us. We have to be courageous enough to do that ourselves. I mean, Philip doesn't, he doesn't even say anything in the scripture. He just jumps right out. That's what we're led to believe and goes and baptizes him. The same ritual and initiation into the faith that Jesus got when the Spirit came down and said, you are mine and you are beloved. And so contained within our gospel, we are to understand the first Gentile convert to Christianity was a black eunuch, a queer sexual minority, who simply yearned and wanted to know God through Christ. Our own story tells us this, friends. The who and the why. And it is everyone always. At the end of the day, and Tango Makes Three, it's an adorable book. It is a great addition to our library. I think it's really important for us to know the science behind animal behavior and how they raise their young in captivity and outside of it. Not only is it interesting, but it helps us be better stewards of the earth that God gave us to take care of. And at the end of the day, we can't farm out the hard work of moral and ethical human problems to a discipline that was not meant for them. We are equipped. We are called. We are nudged just like Philip. God sends us to all kinds of people wanting to receive good news, and they're not going to wait to see if you can find a study that says they're worthy or not to be included. Our own story tells us this. Our own relationship with God tells us this. God said we were good, very good, from the very beginning. Friends, this week I want you, I invite you to consider what role science has in your thinking, in your thought processes, and in your faith. Some of us are trained as scientists, so we use it frequently. But a lot of times, the places that formed us when we were younger, they let us know and, and they gave us a value to what we think about with science. And we don't often come back and visit that and think about it critically. But one of the reasons we're doing this entire series is to engage with ideas we might not be presented with otherwise. So I want you to think about how science has helped you, has helped us. How has it maybe been a crutch? How has it maybe hindered your understandings? What value and priority do you place on it? And what big questions are you asking 
right now of yourself and of all of us together. Amen. All right, Amanda. So you you are a regular podcast listener, so you know a little bit about how this goes. Um, but you get to be in the chair today, which is Yay. fun. Um, so we're going to start with what I hoped folks took away. <laughs> yeah. And then you can share what you actually took away. <laughs> and we'll see if there's any crossover. You never know what the spirit will do. Um, but to open up this series, I wanted to just kind of give a general snippet about why book banning is a bit concerning and how the process of book banning doesn't really line up with our values as progressive Christians. And then specifically with Antango Makes Three, um, this this connection was kind of clear in my brain, but articulating it was a little hard because Chapel Hill has been open and affirming to queer folks for so long. That doesn't, that doesn't need to be preached about. That's not really where we're at. Mm-hmm. And we need to be pushed in other ways. And I know this congregation to be very... Um, very data-driven and to care a lot um, about um, science. And and that's great and wonderful. And uh, sometimes I notice people kind of using that um, as the reason they are inclusive. And I think that's a nice compliment to it. But I wanted to kind of draw us back into our prioritizing or framing our inclusive nature um, to be forward thinking so that we don't have to get double blind studies mm-hmm. <laughs> to let us know it's okay to yeah. be inclusive to whatever group is being marginalized and that our own our own story kind of tells that story from the very beginning. That's where I went. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Um, what I took is that we're called to love people. Mm-hmm. Like That mm-hmm. is what it is. Mm-hmm. And science doesn't teach love. No, it doesn't. I mean, it helps us to distinguish what's happening in the world around us, but that doesn't get down into the depths of our souls. There's no science that explains how the human soul works, right? And yeah. how who we really are. I took that not having access to books and words is really scary and difficult. Yeah. Um, and I mean, those books and words from all of these authors and all of these just experiences shape who we are as people and allow us to hear different viewpoints and understand people's hearts differently. Mm-hmm. And science isn't going to do that for us. Science doesn't have a heart. Yeah. It seeks to explain what the heart does, right? Yeah. <laughs> to the to the extent that it can. Yep. Um, but it's very limited. Yeah, yep. it is. And I think that's interesting because you were sharing um, about how your work before was as an engineer. Yeah. Right. So you've thought about this in a professional capacity and then just as a lived human, Mm -hmm. what that might look like. Um, So I'm curious what what role do you feel like science has in your life? So I think science helps me to understand why certain physical things happen the way that they do. Um, My background is in mechanical engineering. So we use the scientific method to understand like material science and um, physical theories and just chemistry and how all this fits together. But I also grew up in a Methodist church that was very similar to this one, but maybe not quite as progressive. And we were taught from a young age that 
we are meant to ask questions. Mm -hmm. And yes, that's science, right? Yeah. But also that there isn't always going to be an answer to every single question. And that's okay. And part of the reason that my husband and I fell in love with Chapel Hill is we kind of church shopped, you know. And when we came into Chapel Hill for the first time, we sat in the balcony and it was Confirmation Sunday. And there was one girl who stood up and she said, the thing that I take away from this whole confirmation process more than anything is that I don't have to have the answer to everything. And the adults around me don't have to have the answer to everything. We just live this together and we figure it out along the way. And so that really, I think as an adult, it helped to shape my broader picture of things too, that it's okay to not have the answer because as an engineer, it's easy to live in a black and white world and there's <laughs> a lot of gray in between. And we've been having this discussion with our son too. You know, He's almost 10 years old and he's experiencing different friendships and different dynamics and he's always been a this is okay or this is not okay kind of kid and trying to explain to him how the world works it's broadening our scope of what we see as well yeah and it draws us back to our faith and understanding that you know there's so much that we don't know and so many things that we're not going to know for a long time and we have to give ourselves grace and we have to have faith that you know it's okay and that someday there will be answers. And science is great, and it fills in a lot of blanks, but it does have its limits. You know, I um, I really appreciate that because uh, I talked a little bit about um, a tenet of progressive Christianity, right? So even within all sorts of different denominations, even within the United Methodist denomination, some of us are theologically progressive, mm-hmm. and some of us are theologically conservative. And I mentioned that doesn't really uh, correlate necessarily to um, the way we understand those words in partisan political belief, but a a very core tenet of progressive Christianity is an emphasis on um, orthopraxy, the right practice, Mm -hmm. as opposed to orthodoxy, right belief. So um, there are a lot of incredible, you know, really good churches and um, more theologically conservative churches really emphasize right belief. There is a right way to believe. Mm-hmm. So you must articulate X, Y, or Z, and that right belief is, is a way that you live out your life. Theologically progressive spaces like ours are much more focused on orthopraxy, um, how we practice our faith. Mm-hmm. Right? What does our faith look like in the public sphere? Um, meaning that we have, uh, we have less of an emphasis on right belief. Yeah. We have a little more grace with ourselves in um, kind of uh, going through the process and the journey of our faith Mm -hmm. and have a little more freedom to ask questions. And I'm not trying to denigrate, you know, theologically conservative churches. I just think sometimes folks don't even know that progressive, like that's a value of progressive churches or that we exist. Yeah. Because so often the dichotomy is either you choose either religion or science and Mm -hmm. they're, they're often set up as being opposed to one another. So it seems like it was easy for you as someone who kind of had a a numbers, scientific, STEM brain um, <laughs> to grow up in the church and to not have there be a lot of conflict there. Um, I think that at times yeah. it was kind of difficult, but I was always taught to be accepting of people and to, that God is love, like Jesus is love. That's it. And 
I think a lot of times people forget that. They just, <laughs> which it sounds kind of bad, but yeah. I mean, it comes down to just that. That's what we teach our kids, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's the basis of everything is that God is love. And so it shouldn't be that difficult to just treat people with kindness and love. So for me trying to kind of figure that out as, you know, a teenager, I understood that, but balancing all of the other questions mm-hmm. with black and white, it was a little bit of a struggle. Um, but I think having that space to be able to ask questions and the support in knowing that, you know, it, there didn't have to be an answer to something was helpful for me. Yeah. It took a while, but yeah. yeah. You get it. I don't think it's a smooth process for anyone to figure out exactly where they lie in their faith if they start as a child going to church. I think there's always going to be, as with any journey in life, there's ups and downs and you wrestle with things throughout life. And Seasons. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. So switching to a little bit of a, of a different topic, but um, very related. As a parent in this community... Um, what what grappling have you done with uh, calls to do book banning here or just across our country? What has that looked like for you having a 10-year-old? Like, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. when they really start cranking off and reading. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our son is reading everything he can possibly get his hands on. Mm-hmm. He can finish a 350-page novel. I'm talking like fifth, sixth grade level at 10 years old yeah. in a day and a half. <laughs> so... It bothers me a lot to see that a larger entity could say, hey, this book is not appropriate for my child to be able to read. Um, I don't feel like books should be banned. I feel like that information should be there for everyone to be able to read. And then you make your best choice or your best decision on how you feel about that based on the information that you have and who you are, and then you proceed forward. Mm -hmm. But taking that information and hiding it or keeping it from people doesn't do anything for society. It prevents us from being able to grow and become who we're supposed to be if we don't have access to stories from all different walks of life. Yeah. You know, I've I've thought about this a lot too, um... As a, as a parent, but also as someone who was trained as an educator, mm-hmm. um, there wasn't really, you know, when I was going through school, you know, 15 years ago, whatever, um, <laughs> there wasn't really this big call for book banning in yeah. the same way that there is now. But it's really interesting to me that there are parents who just fundamentally um, don't trust the goodness of their kids. Yeah. And like, I I get that, you know, their prefrontal cortex isn't set. I've been there. I've made Mm -hmm. decisions from that place that I'm not proud of. Um, So I'm not saying we should, you know, trust our children with everything and not not have hard conversations or put boundaries or check in with them about certain content. But just trusting that they're capable of wrestling with this idea. And, you know, they'll come out okay on the other side because of all of the community, you know, and the influence we bring to who they are. Yeah. Um, and that, I think about that a lot, you know, like what mm-hmm. have, why, why do we not trust our kids, you know, to this extreme extent to be able to grapple yeah. with ideas? We do a lot of talking in our house. Yeah. We discuss everything. <laughs> so a lot of the times I'm, 
I love to read. So a lot of what our son is reading are books that I've read or that I'm reading with him. If it's something that I feel may be a topic that we need to be able to discuss further, we'll read it together or we'll read it at the same time and then come back and talk about it a little bit further. But you're right. We need to be able to trust that the kids that we're raising can make good choices and understand that they can come to us to discuss further if they don't really know what it is that they've read or they have questions um, we should be a safe place for them to be able to do that well and also to yeah to trust that when they make a bad choice they can still come to us and they will learn from it yeah and like our job is to kind of put parameters around um you know like safety issues within those choices for (laughs) sure but you know like yeah we've all that we've all made bad choices and we've all learned from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would have been lovely at times to have had an adult to be able to like, yeah, kind of think some of that through with. Yeah. And you know, I'm going to be honest, none of my bad choices were ever from a book. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> you no, know, they just, I, I think they're just part of being a, you know, a knucklehead kid. So yep. it's, it's, it's just interesting. And, and I, I want to approach folks, um, that are asking for these book bans with generous assumptions. Like we all care about our kids, right? Yeah. We all care about our kids. We all love our kids. Um, but th- there are these hard places of figuring out, okay, well, how do we, how do we do that in the public sphere? And what does that mm-hmm. look like all of us together? Because the individual choices you might make for your kid are going to look different from mine. And, and how true. can we, how can we find space to even have conversations about what that might look like? Yeah. So I'm, I'm working on the generous assumption part. That's where I'm at right now in my journey of like, of course we all love our, of course. Um, and, and sometimes because it's so vitriolic, it's hard to even get there. So that's a starting place for me. I did have some fun science thoughts that I thought would be cool to share. Okay. (laughs) You know, I like science thoughts. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, we were talking about this a little bit in staff meeting. But so much of our science, we act as if it is um, without any biases. Mm-hmm. Anyone who is in oh any sort of scientific discipline is hyper aware of the right? amount of biases we bring into the studies and how, you know, all of that. So that's, I think, an interesting starting place is that mm-hmm. we've been taught to treat science as if it is entirely objective. And that is simply not the case. Correct. Um, but particularly with same-sex uh, sex behaviors and animals and this kind of Darwinian thought mm-hmm. of survival of the fittest, I think that data was misused, but also that lens is so incredibly narrow because there's a collective idea of a species survival, right? right? So there's this collective idea that perhaps with penguins or seagulls or whoever else, it might actually be nice to not have every single creature wants to have the drive to reproduce, but also to be able to care for young. Yeah. Um, and there's been a lot of science about that, about how we don't really know why this happens, but one excellent reason that science might give us would be that, um, you know, we've been taught that science is an individual mandate for every for every individual within a species, but perhaps our um, the animal kingdom is more collectivist generally. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was kind of interesting to talk about, especially because Darwin approached his work with a bias that he had. Right. You know, we all do. That's just kind of how we how we do and, and dig into things. Um, and again, like ultimately, is that what we, is what we want a bunch of scientific studies? Like, <laughs> is that oh what gosh. we want deciding, 
you know, what's going on in society. Because we have all these ridiculous, like we, we've known for decades, there is no such thing as an alpha male in a wolf pack. Right? We've known that. Mm-hmm. And yet that concept pervades like everything. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. And it's just, we're, we're coming out with more and more actual studies of animal behavior that are like, oh, you know, <laughs> male buck stags that like lead a herd of deer, they don't actually lead. They do a lot by consensus. And a lot of scientists were able to figure out how that happened. But particularly when there's only one kind of scientist. Mm-hmm. The science ends up looking in a particular way that may or may not benefit that one kind of scientist. Correct. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. It's just interesting to think about. And I thought it would be worth um, mentioning, like, no, science is not the rubric by which we decide who who's worthy, who is beloved, you know, who's in the kingdom of God. And yet, a lot of the science we have is wrong, <laughs> has been disproven, but like yeah. lives in cultural myth um, and has for a long time. I think we're always learning and yeah. to base something that large off of something we really don't know enough about isn't fair. Yeah. It's just not because we don't know everything about every single species and why things happen the way that they do and why animals behave the way that they do. We have a good good viewpoint on it but there's always going to be something new and if animals are evolving that data that you have from a few years ago may not no longer be relevant yes that brings me to the lesbian seagulls amanda (laughs) (laughs) for a long time off the coast there are these lesbian seagulls and they found out it was actually because of all the chemicals um, we were using to control mosquito populations the females would be able to um, get rid of those chemicals those byproducts through eggs and they could survive but all the males Mm. died right so then all of these female seagulls paired up together and people used this as like this incredible like isn't it great like these seagulls are lesbians so like lesbians are okay and then we found out later, it was after we removed those chemicals, like, no, oftentimes they go back <laughs> to being partnered in different ways. But did okay. we need that study in the first place? Right. Right. And again, like I said yesterday, I don't want to, if that study ever helped anyone feel more okay with who they are or in their skin or in their queerness, God bless it. I'm here for it. I just want to be hesitant about uh, all of us as a society using studies like you had very narrow studies yeah. to decide who's in or who's out um, and, and we tend to do that because we love yeah. we love data we do we just want something else to prove our point and yeah. sometimes like you mentioned like we're not gonna have specific answers and we just have to go with our gut and like where god is nudging us and the fact that that's yeah. a little squishy makes some of us uncomfortable <laughs> But it's okay to sit in that discomfort sometimes, too. Mm-hmm. It is. Yep. Maybe more people need to. <laughs> I know I need to some days, so. Yeah. Yep. Well, I, uh, much to folks' chagrin, I talk often about how church shouldn't always make, make you comfortable. Mm-hmm. Church is not supposed to make you comfortable. Pastors don't exist to make you comfortable. Jesus certainly didn't make a lot of people comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to the point where he was, you know, tortured and crucified for the lack of comfort he provided to people. So there's something about those spaces of being uncomfy uh, where we're called to grow and to move and to not have all the particular answers. Well said. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Amanda, um, unless you have more to say about this, I want to talk to you about your weaving. Ah. 
Yeah. yeah. So, um, first of all, could you, t- you have, you have like a, you do small batch stuff. Yep. You know, but you have a little store and I would love for you to tell us the name because if we, I want to be a cheerleader in supporting your incredible work. (laughs) Um, So you can find me on Facebook. It's Elodie May Designs and Elodie is E-L-O-D-I-E and May is M-A-E. So a little bit different. Um, But yeah, I've been weaving for seven years now. How did you get into it? So I've always loved fiber arts. It's always been this calming, safe place that just has been very enjoyable. And, you know, being a 20-year-old who loves to knit in a college atmosphere is not always the most comfortable place to be. Sure. Speaking of uncomfortable, (laughs) I love knitting. (laughs) I remember we would um, hang out with friends and my husband and all of his guy friends would be playing video games and doing their thing. And I'm sitting there in the corner knitting and, you know, I'd come out of it with a finished product and I'd feel happy and relaxed and calm and I'd get teased a little bit, but it was my happy place. So I started... Let's see, I started, I learned to knit probably when I was about eight and crochet around the same time. And um, when my husband and I started dating 20 years ago, his mom was a knitter and she said, come on over, we'll knit together. So we would hang out, have a girl's night and knit while my husband and his friends would go out, (laughs) (laughs) which is really funny. And I just fell in love and could not get enough of figuring out design and how everything worked together and how you could take this piece of string and make something out of it that was usable. And I continued to knit, uh, went through a lot of losses between 2014 and 2016. And I came across an article in an Oprah magazine, actually, about this woman who was a sheep farmer and she sheared her own sheep and then she processed the wool into thread and then she went ahead and she would weave blankets and my heart just screamed this I need to do this this is what I need for healing this is what I need just for me this is who I'm called to be and I sat down at the loom for the first time that following January and it felt like I was coming home it felt Mm. like I just had been doing this for a million lifetimes there was no no explanation it just I knew what I was doing and it just felt right so um, I started weaving then and one of my first projects was a big blanket Um, that's my happy space and what I really love to design and weave and over the last I'd say five years I picked up spinning as well and processing my own wool Uh, also spinning some cotton and some flax and then using that in my designs so I really enjoy being able to look at my fiber figure out where I want my color placement to go within that thread that I'm spinning and how that's going to translate into my woven product wow yeah yeah (laughs) it's clear that it's such a spiritual practice for you like this is sabbath right like that is sabbath what you're Mm -hmm. kind of describing and earlier we were talking about this i asked if you listen to music (laughs) and i would love for you to share your answer with everyone so i do listen to music but your question was do i listen to music when i weave yes i I should Um, have added that (laughs) so i don't listen to music when i weave typically if i do i really love lauren daigle but for the most part i don't listen to music when I weave. Um, I was trained as a pianist from very young. And when I sat down at the loom, there's so much similarity between the feeling of being at a piano and being at a loom. 
Um, the size is similar. Having your warp right in front of you feels like having the keys in front of you and throwing the shuttle is a very rhythmic activity. Um, and dancing across your treadles, just all of the numbers and all of that combined really translates to this rhythm and this pattern that plays out that feels very much like music. So for me, it's a very meditative process. Um, I get into that flow, you know what I mean by flow, Yeah. yeah. you know, where you're just focused Mm -hmm. solely on what you're doing and everything else is blocked out. So yeah, I... I don't really need music because yeah. I'm very focused on the numbers and how the music that they make themselves. Yeah, yeah. that is so beautiful. Um, and if you're a member of our congregation listening, you have seen some of Amanda's work, not only in a stole, um, two stoles for Barry, yep. um, but also the stole that we gave uh, Jenaba. His stole was made by Amanda as well. Yeah. Um, and I think for that one, I mean, you spun the fiber, right? I spun some of the silk for it. Yeah. 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 Just incredible. And the fact that you're, I'm so in awe of folks that um, can take the numbers and have like the the geometry part of your brain where you can see, right? mm-hmm. where you can take, <laughs> take something and then see um, where it will go. It's just, it's incredible that God has gifted, has gifted some of us with that ability. I am in awe of it. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. 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 Well, to end up, um, you know, last week, Andrea and I talked about what, what TikToks we were watching, but I thought, um, I just asked you, what are, what are you doing for fun? You're busy. What what you got going on that feels fun to you? Yeah, so I'm back in the studio down at the KIA, and that's really awesome. It's a great community. If you are ever interested in fiber arts or any other arts, check them out. They're just really, really cool. Um, So I'm back in the studio. I'm getting a lot done at home as well, but we're focusing. We're heading into birthday season. So... (laughs) I turn 40 tomorrow, our son turns two, and our next turns 10, all within about four weeks of each other. So we're doing a lot of party planning right now. Yeah. What's your favorite birthday dessert? Like, what do you get for your birthday? So I'm dairy-free. Yeah. So it's usually a cupcake from Sewell's. They have some really good um, dairy-free and gluten-free cupcakes that actually taste like cupcakes. Nice. Um, I miss getting, like, a Funfetti cake. (laughs) (laughs) Just so bad for you. And as an adult, it doesn't feel like you should really eat those, right? Oh, come on. (laughs) I mean, we could probably we could probably adjust it to being dairy free, but usually just a cupcake, yeah. Nice. At this point. Yeah. Yeah. Well we we have a Polly birthday coming up in November and we'll have to figure out now he can articulate what he wants for his dessert. Oh yeah. Um but I have what I'm doing for fun is I'm I've been listening to a lot of new music. And that has been um, very spiritually edifying to me. So I would uh, I would commend to you Hosier's new album. Oh. Um, anyone who's listening, it's okay. um, Unreal Unearth. And if you have not heard him, um, he's Irish, uh, so sometimes it's hard to hear <laughs> what, he, what he's singing. But the concepts for his songs are incredible. He has a lot um, of these like love songs that are so intense and you, they're just beautiful by themselves. But then you mm-hmm. learn like he made a lot of them based on um, particular parts of Dante's Inferno. Oh, yeah. It's just I would I would okay. recommend. Uh, yeah. If folks are in a space where they want to feel some feelings. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. I'm, I'm doing that, that for out. fun. I'm feeling feelings for fun. Now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. Well, it has been a delight having you here. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thank you for having me. We'll see you around. Yeah. Mm -hmm.